Bibles, please, to Psalm 147. We're going to take a break today from our teaching through the book of Genesis. We'll pick that up again next week in chapter 41. But I think it's really important, at least once a year when Thanksgiving comes, to take a chance to talk about the need for deliberate thankfulness. Now, there's a few of you out there that are naturally thankful. It's just kind of built into you. It's sort of part of your personality. Most of the rest of us are not naturally thankful. I was raised by parents that, that taught me to be thankful, and I think it's kind of part of my personality. I'm a, I'm a relatively like nice person. I'm not sure the motivations for all that are always great. Sometimes people who are nice to other people and are deliberately thankful are just that way because they want you to like them. So sometimes even people who are naturally that way do it for the wrong reasons. So whether you do it or you don't do it, uh, most of us struggle with thankfulness. And so Thanksgiving is one of those times where we come around the table with our families and friends and we perhaps in your family tradition take a chance to say, this is the thing I'm most thankful for in the year that's gone by. I think our church over the past couple of years has had an unusual amount of suffering, an unusual amount of hard times. We've had people be very sick We've had um, people face some debilitating joint stuff and long surgeries and long recovery times to get better from those things. We've had people go through significant financial difficulties. Uh, we've had family lose a baby, obviously. We've had, um, we've had really hard stuff. We've had marriages that have struggled. We've had uh, people have problems with their kids. It's been an unusual couple of years I was corresponding with, with Mary this past week, and if any family has been Job-like in, in the past year, it's been the Gammon clan, the three of their daughters and their families are in our church. It's been like one thing after another for them, with uh, Blake being born with spina bifida, who we love, we love seeing Blake zoom around church now in his, in his wheelchair, but that's been difficult to, to watch Blake go through that and other physical trials. Uh, to see what Justin and Katie went through in losing Luke, and Mary lost her dad, and, um, and other things some of you know about and some of you don't. And so she said to me, because it, it was a hard week for a number of us this past week, and she said, I'm praying for you and so forth, and she said, you know, I, I know that this has been hard, and she said, it seems like the hard stuff just keeps coming. You know, it's like it's, like it's not slowing down. And so I say that to bring up this point. I know some of you who are here today are not normal attenders in our church because of the child dedications and you're here with your family, that probably you have, have undergone some similar things. You've undergone similar trials. In the recent past, and perhaps even today, you come here and you're, you're pretty fragile. You're pretty brokenhearted. Thanksgiving, the giving of thanks, is difficult at all times, even on our bright and sunny days. It's hard on the bright and sunny days because everything's going pretty well. And perhaps in pride, though it might be subtle, we think that we have accomplished something that has brought about the good, the bright and sunny days. Thanksgiving is probably even more difficult. The giving of thanks is even more difficult on our hard days. The cloudy days, the dreary days, the gloomy days. Because often we're just sort of muscling through. We're, we're just sort of bearing and grinning and just kind of making it. 
a lot of times when we're struggling, we kind of go into survival mode. Like all the critical systems are the only ones that are functioning. All the peripheral stuff shuts down and we're just going into survival mode. All of our energy gets channeled in just making the next meal, going to work for the next 8 to 16 hours, getting the kids in bed one more time, sending that next email. Like we're just doing the next thing and just kind of muscling through. It becomes very difficult in those days to be thankful. Not only because we're struggling, not only because all of our energy is just going to keeping the balls in the air so that life doesn't fall apart, but also because perhaps during that time we're actually not thankful. Perhaps if you have been struggling in the recent past or even today, the reason you're not thankful is because you're really mad at God. You're mad that He's putting you through things that you would not have chosen. You're mad at Him for giving you a trial that you don't think you deserve. You're mad at Him, you're angry with Him because the, the length of your trial seems to be interminable. It's like, when is this going to be over? It was okay that it was a day or five days or two weeks, but, but God, this is like six weeks now, six months, it's a year. Perhaps you're frustrated with Him and you wonder, does He see me? Does He care about me? Intellectually, I know he does because it's written down somewhere. And I know lots of Bible stories. I've heard lots of sermons. I've read all the right books. I know there's this deity up in the heavens, and he's super strong and super powerful, and he's supposed to see everything and know everything, but I'm not sure he sees me, and I'm not sure he cares about me. Now, most of us would not have the gall to actually articulate that, but we do feel that way. And let me just pause for a moment and say that I think sometimes it's okay just to say that out loud. You know, like whenever your kids are really angry with you because you haven't met all their expectations, and they say something like, you don't love me, or why did you do that to me, or why did you let that happen to me, or why are you making me do this? In that moment, you don't go upstairs and pack their minions backpack with a few pairs of underwear and a coat and a couple goldfish snacks and say, well, on your way, you know, you, you've slandered me and you're no longer, you know, permitted in this household. Now, you might be frustrated with them for a moment because they have dishonored you perhaps and they've doubted your kindness and your goodness and your provision. But you don't cast them off. They're your kids. And according to Jesus, even the best of parents, we're kind of evil. We've got a lot of bad stuff in these hearts. But God's not like that. The intensity with which you love your children pales in comparison. It's, it's infinitesimal. It's minuscule in comparison to the love that your perfectly loving Father has for you. Sometimes the most healthy thing you can do is shake your fist a little bit and, and be honest about your anger and frustration with Him. But it cannot end there. And that brings us to a text like Psalm 147, where the psalmist not only responds to how God has blessed him or her and recollection to what God has done and, and being able to look back and review what God has done, 
but I think there's even a deeper lesson for us here. Not only that we can, after the fact, be thankful, but, but through the trial, be thankful. So I guess what I'm saying today is we have to learn to practice thankfulness, especially in the hard times. That in some ways it almost becomes a discipline. That sometimes perhaps your heart doesn't catch up with right away. But through the Spirit's help and through the influence of the Word, our hearts can be brought into conformity with what our lips are saying to God and to other people. So to put it really simply, one of the best things that we can do in the midst of our trials is to practice thanksgiving. And I think Psalm 147 helps us with that. So let's read it together. And I'll give you a brief outline so we can understand it and apply it to our hearts. This is God's word. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of the wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters hoarfrost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. And God bless to us the reading of his word. Three times in this text, in verse 1, verse 7, verse 12, it is said that we are to praise the Lord. Specifically in verse 7, it is said that we are to praise the Lord with thanksgiving. And even though that's the only time in this text that that word is mentioned in all three sections where we are told to praise the Lord, there are elements within each section that demonstrate that we are to be grateful. The psalmist is careful to point out things about God for which we should be thankful, either in His character or more generally, in his works for us, the things that he does on behalf of his children. So, we are to give thankful praise. 
First of all, because he sovereignly cares for the brokenhearted. You'll notice in verse 2 that the Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts. Most likely, this is one of the last psalms written, probably after the exile when the southern kingdom was coming back from Babylon. So in 605 B.C., for you history nerds, in 605 B.C., the southern kingdom began to be deported to Babylon because Babylon had conquered Judah. The primary wave of the exiles was taken to Babylon in 586, and they did not return until 537. So they were there for about 70 years. And the first wave of exiles to return was just a small wave. It wasn't until later that a lot of them came back. You know this history because Ezra and Nehemiah led people back and helped make sure the temple was in order and the walls of the temple were rebuilt. In fact, the walls of the temple were, or the walls of the city rather, were not fully rebuilt until about 445 B.C. So it was over 150 years later that Jerusalem, the capital of the southern kingdom, that it was once again defensible. So for 150 years, the city kind of lay in ruins, which is a metaphor for the way that the nation itself was. The reason that they had gone into exile is because they had sinned. God told the people of Israel through Moses back in the book of Deuteronomy that if they would be faithful to him, that he would bless them, that they would be able to retain the promised land as a sign of his blessing and care, that he would insulate them from danger and he would show his favor upon them. But conversely, he also gave them curses. If you don't honor me, if you don't follow after me, I will not bless you and I will take you out of the land. And so many hundreds of years later, after wave after wave of unfaithfulness, God did just that. And interestingly, he used evil means. Nebuchadnezzar was, at least at first, a very evil king, conquering all that he could for his own gain. And God used a pagan evil person to teach his people a lesson. Eventually, the Persians come in and overthrow the Babylonians under Cyrus, and he makes a decree. God has punished his people long enough in exile, and he allows them to go back. And it's that context in which this psalm is most likely written, that the exiles are now returning to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem lies in ruins, much like they have been. They have, they have been ruined because of their lack of faithfulness to God. They have not honored Him, they have not loved Him, they have not been loyal to Him, and so because of that, He punishes them. But as He always does, God forgives, and He allows them to come back. He gathers together those who have been evil, and it demonstrates that though He is angry with sin, He does forgive. This demonstrates His great patience and His sovereign plan. What was it like for the exiles? Well, verse 3, they were brokenhearted. They were suffering because of their sin, the sins of their parents and grandparents. Because they were exiles, they were treated poorly. They were wounded. We are like exiles. We are like people that have undergone trial, and we don't feel like we're quite at home. 
we'll show some verses in the New Testament that prove to that to us in just a bit. How could such people, exiles, broken-hearted people, wounded people, praise God? Though we are exiles, and again, I will try to prove that to you in a moment, your suffering is not necessarily because you are suffering because of your sin. That is to say, the people of Israel were suffering because of their rebellion against God, and He had to punish them to teach them, to purify them, to wean them of self-confidence and idolatry. Your woundedness, your brokenheartedness may not be directly because of your sin, but we live in a sinful world. And the ramifications of other people's sin trickle down toward us and affect us. Sin leads to divorce. And even if you aren't divorced, you may be in a marriage that you can't stand. And the sinfulness of two broken people living in proximity to one another, trying to overcome selfishness and love another person and stop loving themselves so much, that's because of sin, and it damages and it cuts. Many of us had parents that failed us miserably. When they should have protected us, they didn't. They lived their lives for themselves, not for us. And even to this day, though, we still get together with them for holidays, like maybe Thursday. The painful memories are there, and even being cordial is tough. And looking forward to Thursday and later December just makes you anxious because you don't want to be around those people that should have helped you but didn't do it. Some of you have undergone the, the pangs of of hunger as a child. You didn't have enough to eat because your family didn't have enough, and now you worry about money all the time. And even if you grew up with plenty, most of us worry about having plenty of resources. Your job has been fragile and tenuous, and that has caused you great anxiety. Some of you work too much, and there doesn't seem to be any end in sight. It's costing you. Some of you don't feel appreciated. Some of you feel like no one notices you, and your heart's broken. And we could go on and on. There's, there's lots of reasons why you might come here today and be brokenhearted. But what the psalmist is saying here is that, that we should know that God sees us, that He cares about our wounds, and frankly, He's the only one who can do anything about it. After all, He's the only one who can really see inside. Most of us are pretty adept at hiding our pain, our woundedness from other people. Even those of us who have broken hearts, we're afraid that if we admit it to other people that they won't listen to us, that, they'll, that maybe they'll run away from us because they don't want to hear our sob story, that maybe they'll even think we're freaks. We have this notion that everybody around us is doing super well. Life's going swimmingly for them, and we're the only ones struggling. I will tell you as one who helps a lot of you through your hard times that nothing could be further from the truth. At any given time, probably more than half of this church is struggling through some pretty hard stuff. But even still, your brothers and sisters can pray for you, but they can't fix it. Only God can. And frankly, it's not hard for Him. We know that because He made everything and He sustains everything. 
So he's talking about exiles who are broken and wounded and hurting in verses 2 and 3. And then he starts talking about cosmology, about astronomy. Why does he make that jump? That doesn't seem to be very logical. Like, what's the connection between verses 3 and 4? The point is this. If he knows the names of all the stars, stuff that even the geeks at NASA haven't done because they haven't even seen them. And by the way, because I am a bit of a geek, I found out last night that there are at least 10 septillion stars. That's a 10 with 24 zeros. And that might be a gross underestimation of how many stars there are in the universe. And he has named every single one of them because he uniquely fashioned them. It's kind of striking, isn't it? Like there's stars that will never be seen. That's crazy. Why would he do that? If we are the only inhabited planet, and I think I can make a theological case for that, and if you're like a UFO person out there and you want to argue with me afterward, that's fine. But probably this is the only inhabited planet because of like all the redemptive history stuff with Jesus. Um, why would he make stars that, that are so far away that we'll never see them? Why would he do that? Well, somehow it delights him. Somehow it gives him pleasure. And if nothing else, it helps us, the image bearers, the crowning achievement of his creation, it helps us to be in awe of him. But you see, the naming of the stars shouldn't make us be scared of God. The naming of the stars, that such a being could do such a thing, should lead us to the notion that, that such a God can take care of us. And yes, he can fix the problems. He can take them away. But he can sustain us through. He can help us through the trials. Verse 5 tells us that our Lord is great. He's abundant in power. N nothing's outside of his control. And his understanding is beyond measure. Which means that God's power and God's goodness are harmoniously brought together. In other words, some very simple questions should be posed by us. What does God know? If he knows the names of ten septillion stars, what escapes his attention? Not a thing. What happens that God did not intend? What is God incapable of controlling? And what will such a God, who is so powerful, do on my behalf, on your behalf? Brothers and sisters, your God is powerful enough to do anything, but he is kind enough to care for your thing. So verse 6 he lifts up the humble, and he treats you with special fatherly care, and he punishes the wicked. Sometimes it seems like the wicked, those who don't love God, have the easiest lives. Everything seems to go pretty well for them. In fact, there's an entire psalm about that, Psalm 73. Why do the wicked seem to prosper, but the righteous seem to suffer? Why does God do that? Because God knows it's best for his children to know that he's in charge and that he loves them. 
The wicked who trust in their riches, the wicked who trust in their intellect, the wicked who trust themselves, they have no conception of this. But if you belong to God, if you're a son or daughter of the eternal Father of heaven and earth, He will not let you live like that. In fact, I think we could say, and please hear me, I think we could say that suffering and weakness is not a sign that God has cast you off. It's not a sign that God does not see you. It's not a sign that God doesn't care. In fact, I think we could say the opposite. Because you are suffering, and because God is making you recognize your weaknesses, it's a demonstration that He actually is there, that He actually does care for you. It's an excruciating process to be a child of God. Because God will relentlessly wean us of self-confidence. Because it's a poison that will destroy us. And God puts us through suffering and trial, allowing us to have broken hearts and wounds to teach us that He is our chief good resource and He will never forsake us. Everyone else can, and many, if not most, will. But your powerful God who set the galaxies spinning and sustains them every moment, He sees you and He knows you because you are more precious than stars. And He will meet your needs. I said to you a few moments ago that we are like exiles. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to 1 Peter chapter 1. Now, most of us have not been driven to a foreign land and kicked out of our homeland because we've been sinful. But there's a spiritual component to being in exile as well. Peter speaks of this in his first epistle. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, Peter begins by saying, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Most likely, he is speaking metaphorically of all those that belong to God. The people of Israel exiles in a foreign land, awaiting the return to the promised land. But, but that's like us. We're awaiting the promised final rest that God will bring to us through Christ. But that has been initiated. Jesus is our rest. And while we await His second advent, where He will come and bring His capital city to this earth and refashion it, and rule and reign among us where this world will be characterized by peace and righteousness. While we await that, we are exiles. He goes on to say in chapter 2, verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Again, speaking metaphorically, we've sort of taken up this spiritual Israel kind of concept. A people for His own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, verse 11, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We are like exiles. Turn with me, please, to Psalm 8. Psalm 8, verses 1 through 4. 
We exiles often feel alone. That's how exiles feel. They feel alone. But we are not alone. And Psalm 8 teaches us that. David says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens out of the mouth of babes and infants. You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? David learned this as a young shepherd tending the sheep at night, lying on his back with his staff and his sling, looking up at the stars and wondering how such a God could care for him, a little lowly shepherd boy in the land of Judah. And he wrote about it. Brothers and sisters, we are like exiles, and we would wonder how such a God who made all things would care about us, but he does. Some time ago, I participated in an adoption panel Um, at an adoption conference here in town. And I was brought in because my wife and I had decided to adopt at that point. And I was supposed to get the perspective of someone who had made that decision and help families think through that as they were thinking about adopting on their own. But I sat on a panel with others who had adopted a number of times. And one guy in particular had adopted like 10 kids from China. It was an amazing family. And he told a really cool story that I'll never forget. Tragic, but, but super intriguing. He said the first time that they had adopted from China, they paid a little bit of extra money, and the orphanage to which they went took them behind the scenes. I guess it's not a normal thing to be able to do that. Typically, you go to this room, and they bring you your child, and you take the child to the hotel and do some legal stuff and fly back to the United States. That's kind of the way it works. But this family wanted to see where their child came from, so they paid some extra money. And they got to go into the infant rooms. And he said that the infant rooms were maybe about half as big as this Jim Cafetorium thing that we're in right now. And he said there were hundreds of cribs lined up, and they had metal bars all the way around, and they had a plywood platform that the baby slept on. And once a day, the nurses would come through and give them a wet washcloth to soothe them. And then a couple, three times a day, they would just bring them a bottle, and they would just throw it in the crib. He said, not only were the conditions themselves striking and awful, something that, that we would never do for our children. And you know what it's like when you have your first child. You, know, you come up with the best Pinterest room possible for the child, the right color schemes and the right mattresses, like Tempur-Pedic stuff. I mean, like, we treat our kids well. It was striking that those kids had very sp- a very Spartan existence. But he said, the thing that struck him the most was that you went into that room where there were a couple hundred babies, but there wasn't a noise Like, if you listen really closely right now, you can hear our kids in the back. You can hear the babies. Because those babies know that when they cry, they will be attended to. Those couple hundred little Chinese babies, as they were in that room, didn't cry anymore. Because mom didn't come soothe them. A rag was given to them. Daddy didn't feed them. They were supposed to feed themselves with a bottle. Why do I tell you that story? You might think that no one hears you, but God does. And just like you attend to the needs of your children when they cry out for you, God will do the same. And if he's powerful enough to create the stars and name them one by one, he's powerful enough to care for you, and he will because he loves you. 
So we are to give thankful praise because he sovereignly cares for the brokenhearted. And secondly, verses 7 through 11, because he delights in those who trust in him. In verse 7, we are told to sing with thanksgiving. We are to make melody to our God in the lyre. It's to be musical. It's to be happy. But sometimes it's not happy. And so I say to you again that we are not just to be thankful in hindsight for what God has done, but through the process. You see, the first wave of exiles that came back to Israel, it took them almost a hundred years to feel safe again before the walls were rebuilt. It took them a long time just to have the temple back in basic working order. And even that temple paled in comparison to the former glorious temple of Solomon. Nothing seemed quite right. And yet the psalmist says that in the midst of our pain and our brokenheartedness, we are to continue to sing with thanksgiving, to recount what God has done for us, to recognize that though we are struggling, we can be thankful for what He's done for us. In this section, He covers the heavens with clouds and prepares rain for the earth. In other words, He's feeding the earth. Do you realize that, that even in the midst of your trials, there's food on your table? There's clothing enough to keep you warm. For most of us, there's a spouse there to lie in bed with us at night for companionship. For most of us, our kids are basically healthy. We may not have as much money as we wanted, but there's, for most of us, a job. We might wish that life had gone a little bit differently, but, but God has blessed us. That's what the psalmist is saying here. In the midst of our trials, in the midst of our brokenheartedness, in the midst of of wanting things to be different and better, God's still taking care of us. Verse 9, he gives beasts food. He gives ravens food. So land and sky, he's taking care of every creature. How much more us? This is Jesus' argument in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says to the crowds, If God clothes the flowers of the field in splendor, if he feeds the birds of the air, how much more does he love you? You're his image bearers. You're his kids. God does not delight in the mighty. God delights in the lowly, the lowly who trust him, the lowly who don't trust in their own strength, the lowly who learn through their trials that God is their only resource. Because ultimately, brothers and sisters, that's what we're learning. In our broken hardness, we're learning that God is our only resource. And painful though that may be, that is an invaluable, priceless lesson. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him. It's easy to skip over that, but think of, think of the profound truth in that verse. We know that we are to take our pleasure in God, but this verse says that He takes pleasure in us. When you have your first child and they're lying on their Tempur-Pedic bed and the proper mobile from Pottery Barn is going round and round and the proper wipe warmer is warming the wipes to the proper temperature and everything is perfect in the room and the baby finally is sleeping through the night and you're gazing at said child and it's sleeping peacefully, you can gaze at that child and take great pleasure in what God has given you. How much more? You gave conception to that child but God fashioned you out of dust. You don't know what tomorrow holds, but 
God's already written your story. You can't fix your problems, but God made a septillion stars, and He can take care of yours. You can't fix your sin issues, but God sent His Son, whom He had loved for eternity, to die for you, to rescue you. The Lord takes pleasure in you. He sings over you. He dotes on you. He does not like it when you hurt, but He will use your hurt to lift your heart to Him. What should this lead us to? Fear. Not cowering before Him, not fear of condemnation, but awe, A-W-E, and hope. What is the chief expression of God's steadfast love? That God keeps His covenant. That despite our sinfulness, God does not cast us off. What do we deserve because of our unfaithfulness? All of us here today, we deserve the wrath of God. The one who made a septillion stars could zap you into oblivion in an instant. You know what he did instead? He punished his son. You know the chief expression of God's steadfast love? That the Father and the Son made a covenant before the world ever began, knowing full well that the world would plunge itself into sin. That the Son would come and bear the wrath of God and become a propitiation, a wrath bearer that we might be brought back to God. You know what Jesus achieved on the cross and through his resurrection? He achieved an economy where a transaction could occur. Where he would drink the cup of God's wrath dry so that you would not have to. That your sin might be taken away and that you might receive his righteousness. That's the gospel. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became your substitute to bear God's wrath and to offer you his righteousness if you will but trust him. God takes pleasure in people like you. People who turn from sin and turn from self and turn to Jesus. So he feeds you with food, just like he does the rest of the earth. But he rescues your soul. And he delights in you and sings over you. Thirdly and lastly today, we should give thankful praise to the Lord because he has set his affection on his chosen people and shepherds them in every season. This text demonstrates to us that no people is like Israel. Verse 20 tells us that. He hasn't dealt with any other nation like he's dealt with Israel. And now he has made us his spiritual Israel, his chosen ones. He has rescued us through his son and made a new covenant with us. And he not only has set his particular affections upon us, he has given us his word. Verse 19, he has taught us how we should live and shown us himself. And most especially, he proclaims to us the good news. That's the primary message of our Bible, that God is offering redemption to all who will trust him in Christ. That is the legacy of Jesus Christ, that he offers himself to all who will trust him. This is the new covenant, that those who will be joined to Jesus in faith will receive eternal life. And we who have received such a life can know 
that in every season he cares for us. Notice here that he sends snow. Snow like wool, verse 16. Hoar frost like ashes. Crystals of ice in verse 17. A blast of cold that no one could stand before. But then in verse 18, he melts all that like the spring and the summer. As good Midwesterners, we are getting ready to face glorious gray Ohio winter, which many of you hate, and I get it. But one of the things about Ohio winter is that we know that spring is coming. It's easy in the spring when the rains are falling and the skies are blue and the sun is shining and we can get outside. It's, it's easier to enjoy God. It's easier to enjoy life. It's easier to recognize blessing. But if it weren't for winter, we wouldn't appreciate the spring. If it weren't for the ice, we would not appreciate the melted waters. My parents live in the mountains of Colorado. Their house is at 9,500 feet above sea level. And they are in a region that has undergone a pretty big drought of snow. Basically, the western Rockies are just a really high desert. And so my parents live in an area where for a long time there has not been sufficient snowfall. Because of that, the trees dry out. And just a couple of years ago in the area they live, there were horrible forest fires that threatened the perimeter of their town, actually. The, the snows of the western Rockies not only keep the slopes where all the trees are from being combustible and being in danger of fire. But the western slopes of the Rockies feed millions of people. I don't know if you knew this, but the water that flows out of the Colorado River is directly affected by the snowfall each year. If it weren't for the Colorado River and because of the snowfall, places like Las Vegas and other places couldn't even hope to exist. Winter, if you think of it this way, brings life in the spring. Brothers and sisters, God is in charge of the seasons of your life. You might be in a winter right now. And though the melt doesn't seem like it's coming anytime soon, you've seen in the past that He's done that for you. That He has brought the seasons to pass in such a way to bring you through hard times and then to bring you through good times, to show you His favor. And I say to you that we should not despise the hard times heartbreaking they may be because it is in the hard times that we grow it is in the crucible of life and our hard times where we recognize our limitations and see the greatness and goodness of god and so we can be grateful in hindsight that through the hard times we grew and we learned but i think this text indicates to us three times that we are to praise him not just in hindsight but through the trials we will always hunker down a bit whenever the trials come. We will always go into some measure of survival mode. But I encourage you, do not turn inward. Do not withdraw from Him and from others who can help you recognize His hand. While you are hunkered down, enduring the trial, bracing yourself against the blast of the winds that are coming at you a hundred miles an hour, brothers and sisters, Lift your eyes up a bit and recognize that the one who made a septillion stars and feeds the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, while you await the fall, that he loves you 
and that he sees you. And even in the midst of great trial, you have so much to be thankful for. The primary sign of this, of course, is that he's given you Jesus. And if you have Jesus, you have everything you need. But we have a lot more than that, don't we? He's blessed us in innumerable ways. And it's, it's hard to remember those things whenever we are struggling, whenever we are in the winters of life. But I encourage you, even if you need to write these things down and process them verbally, maybe with a brother or a sister, to do that. If you're like most of us when you're in the midst of trial, let alone the good times, it's hard to be thankful. But one of the ways that you can weather the storms of life, the winters of life, is to be thankful through the process, to recognize His good things towards you, His favor upon you. And I will say lastly that we need each other in that exercise. Now, as we close today, I want you to be thinking of your brothers and sisters who are struggling today. Be mindful of their needs. Come alongside them in their needs. Communicate with them with words of encouragement, hugs and tears, and, and show them how much you love them and care for them. He has given us the community to remind each other of these truths. So may these words from God's eternal scriptures sink down in our hearts. May we endure the winters of life by being thankful, and may we help each other through the process. May God be honored. Let's pray. Father, now, for the benefit of your people, through the influence of your spirit and the glory of Jesus Christ, may you now take these eternal truths and plant them deep in our hearts. May we not just understand them intellectually, but may you apply them to our affections, that our hearts will catch up with our heads. Lord, we have so much to be thankful for. And though we wish the storms would go away, though we wish the winter would fade, we know, because you've done it in the past and you will do it again, that we, your exiles, have not been abandoned and you will not abandon us now. Comfort your children with these words and may you be praised from thankful, though hurting hearts.